So for the next nine weeks, this is going to be the topic of our study, the Lord's Prayer, something I'm sure that all of you know by heart. Now I'm going to say at the outset too that although I absolutely adore the Christian Standard Bible translations, the translation that our church has been hearing from read, I preach from it, it's in our pews, I, I just have to admit that there is no modern English rendering of the Lord's Prayer, in my opinion, that has the poetic beauty and the cultural memory quite like the King James Version. So we will be using the good old King James, at least um, for this study, for the Lord's Prayer. And I think it'll be the, uh, the KJV reading will be the one that we'll work with, Lord willing, as we pray this prayer together on some occasions. But secondly, I want to address too that the Lord's Prayer appears to us in two places in the New Testament. First, in Matthew 6, from what we just read, and that's smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And second, in Luke 11, which I described as uh, being listed as an occasion on which Jesus was praying and His disciples asked Him how to pray. Now, both of them have the same core content to them. But the Luke version is just a little bit shorter, just a little bit pared down. And so the Matthew version is the extended one that we're all familiar with. And so that'll be the one that we're working with mainly, the one from Matthew 6. But I don't want to overlook the occasion again for the Luke 11 prayer. Jesus, we read, was praying on some occasion. And I think Luke is saying to us that this is just what Jesus does. This is the warp and woof of His life and His ministry. Day in and day out, Jesus goes to pray. And it is interesting that the disciples, wanting clearly to become deeper in their devotion, more serious about their piety, come to Jesus and say, we know that John the Baptist's ministry is a ministry of powerful preaching that leads to uh, repentance and baptism. And so we want to know how to pray like John the Baptist disciples. So as Haddon Robinson, the late great preachers, made note, they came to the Master for guidance. Although they have seen at this point in Jesus' ministry, He's captivated thousands with His sermons. And He's healed countless more through His miracles. It's interesting that they never asked Jesus, how do we preach? Or how do we heal? Instead, they asked Jesus, how do we pray? I think that gives us crucial insight into just how important prayer was to the life of Jesus. And how the disciples, even if they felt like they didn't know how to pray, could see that in Jesus. Prayer wasn't preparation for ministry. Prayer was ministry itself. Prayer was the the work that needed to be done first and foremost. Before Jesus went out preaching and healing in His ministry, He first went into the wilderness, we read, especially this time of year, to fast and to pray. And before Jesus went to the cross, Jesus went into the garden to weep and to pray. Before a scourge ever touched His back, or a nail ever pierced His hands, Jesus shed blood and His prayer life before the Father in the Spirit. So is it any wonder then that in Matthew, Jesus tells us 
to pray like this. When we pray, pray like this. And again, Luke more forcefully says, say these words. Pray this prayer. Whenever you pray, Jesus says, say this. So that's my hope that as a, as a church that we can learn to be kind of paradoxically refreshed by doing the hard work of prayer. All of us know that prayer is not easy work. But I'm hoping that as we learn to pray this prayer in earnest, that we can be renewed by it as a church and pouring out our hearts in obedience and trust just as Jesus tells us to do through the Lord's Prayer. Now, as a New Testament theologian, Wes Hill, points out in his book on the Lord's Prayer, it's not unusual that in the first century, an itinerant rabbi, traveling minister like Jesus, would have disciples that would ask him how to pray. But what is unusual, however, is that Jesus rejects the popular model of the day of showy and verbose and ostentatious prayer. That is unusual. Instead, the great surprise is that Jesus, remember, Jesus, God in the flesh, God Himself, seemed more interested in simple, uncomplicated, and from the heart prayer. We read in Matthew 6, right before He introduces us to the Lord's Prayer, He says this to His disciples, Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. I'm struck. A friend of mine told me this years ago. I've never been able to get this image out of my head. But they were in a... uh, Gosh, I guess it was a, a youth group uh, outing, and they were in a restaurant, and one of the students who kind of saw himself as a mentor to the other students, well, he is at this restaurant, and their food comes out, and he wants to pray. And so they say, okay, go ahead and pray for the meal, and I expect him to offer a nice prayer. But he stands up and projects his voice into the room that not only God would bless this meal, but help these sinners that sit around us that don't know the Lord. And everybody wilts as he does this. I haven't stopped thinking about that scene. It was almost as if I was there. It was so vivid in my imagination. That's the exact kind of thing that Jesus is saying, don't do this. When you pray, don't do it looking to impress others, or to shock or scandalize others. Jesus altogether rejects the boastful Jewish prayers as well as the pagan Gentile chants. Because both of those, whether it's this sort of over-theologized prayer or it's just kind of vain, crazy, spiritual rambling, both of those represent something discordant with God's character. 
Our God is not one who prizes intellectually sophisticated words or emotionally frenzied outbursts. It's not what God is interested in. Instead, God is interested in humble, simple, honest prayer. And the reason why is because those other things, the kind of long-winded prayers or the, or the kind of frenzied prayers, those seem to think that in order to seek attention from either God or others, you have to put on this show. You have to put on this act. But what that misses is that God is already favorably predisposed to listen to His people when they pray. We're not on a a remote abandoned island having to spell out the word help with giant stones that we've got and lighting bonfires and hoping that God and His his 747 passing over earth sees that and it knows that we need rescue. We don't need to get His or anybody else's attention. He's not waiting for us to mechanically recite just the right words to say it just, just so to unlock. It's not a magic incantation. We're not summoning Him through spells. No, God is already listening to us. And if you've been reading along in our Wednesday night devotional book or have already read it, or if you haven't had a chance to read it, I invite you to read it because that book just shows so clearly time and again with a multitude of biblical examples that the heart of God, the heart that beats within the chest of Jesus Christ the man, that heart is for sinners and sufferers. It's for people. God does not need to be cajoled or manipulated or harassed into paying attention to us and our needs. Instead, through Jesus, God is our Father who is attending to our needs. He's already predisposed towards you and your good. And here's the miraculous part. Even when you're not very good or godly. The Lord is not waiting for us again to give some flawless recitation or He'll fly off the handle. God in Christ, sometimes this is the hardest thing to believe, God in Christ is for us. And Isaiah records these words all the way back in his prophecy. The Lord says this to Israel, wayward Israel, who he's been excoriating all throughout the book. Even before they call, I will answer. While they're speaking, I'll hear. That's the way God has always been with His people. So instead, Jesus tells us when we pray, we can go to find a quiet place and relax. We don't have to get anybody's attention. And I I said this this morning. I just love how Wes Hill renders this in his book. He says this, with the assurance that the One to whom we're speaking is already cupping His ear in our direction. Before we even open our mouths to say anything, we find that God is already drawing close to us. That's why so many Christians praying the Lord's Prayer together throughout the centuries have said in their worship services, and they've said so rightly, and now as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to say, and then they all pray the Lord's Prayer together. Friends, we have every reason tonight and always to pray these words in confidence and surety and in hope that God is listening to our prayers. And so it's in the Spirit, namely the Spirit, 
that we now can contemplate these words of prayer that Jesus so freely gives to us. You want to know how to pray, Christian? Start here. Jesus says, say this. Often when the Lord's Prayer is taught, when it's broken up, it is taught in seven increments. And, and we are going to see these seven petitions that are in the, uh, in the Lord's Prayer. That is seven requests that the disciples make of the Lord. And the first three are about worshiping the Lord. That's where, the, that's where we begin. We begin by worshiping God when we pray. But then the last four are about invoking the Lord's help in some way. We're praying to the Lord because we need His help. But then we're also going to talk, and this is what we're going to be doing tonight, uh, about the opening invocation, about who we're praying to, the name of the God we're praying to, and what that means. That's what tonight's going to deal with. And then our last night together, we're going to end with this doxology that's all about God's glory. And so those are, the, um, those are going to be the topics that we deal with. Three about worshiping the Lord. Four about invoking His help. Uh, the invocation of His name at the beginning and a doxology of His praise at the end. But all of these things together, all of them together, show us that this prayer is first and foremost about Jesus Christ. And so as we look to the life of Jesus and see this prayer of Jesus, we understand who Jesus is. How Jesus prays is how He lives out His life. See, that's not true of us. I know the way that I can pray sometimes, and I know the way that I pray is often not the way that I live. I suspect that's true for all of us. But as the Presbyterian scholar Dale Allison summarizes, Jesus embodies His speech. He lives as He speaks and He speaks as He lives. So when we see this prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray, we know it's an authentic prayer because this is how Jesus Himself talks to the Father. And so that gets us to our text tonight. We're going to be looking at Matthew 6, 9, part A. Our Father, which art in heaven. Now did you know, this is kind of surprising, it was to me, when I discovered this recently, that God is only called Father. You know what? I'm, we'll, we'll get a crowd response. If you had to guess, and I know this is such a wild question to be getting <laughs> impromptu and on the spot. Does anybody have a guess about how many times we call God Father in the Old Testament? What would you say? I mean, if you just had to guess. That's a good guess. Six. It sounds like a low number, doesn't it? It is a low number. It's about 15. But think of how big the Old Testament is. When you pick up this Bible, it's two-thirds of it is the Old Testament. Over the course of that, God is only referred to as Father about 15 times. But yet, it's interesting that that's surprising to It was surprising to me because we're so used to the language of Father, that relational, intimate language, and yet it so rarely occurs in the Old Testament. So why are we so used to it? It's because when we get to the New Testament, what we see is something staggeringly different. Jesus refers to God in the Gospels as Father 170 times. So with Jesus, 
we see the relationship to God as Father really opens up to us. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's, let's talk about the fatherhood of God as it's related to us in the Old Testament. Again, the fatherhood of God is seen all over the Bible. And it is explicitly stated in the Old Testament. For instance, one of the times that God is referred to as Father is in Isaiah 64.8. And this is when Israel is confessing seemingly through the words of Isaiah, Yet Lord, You are our Father. We are the clay and You are our potter. We are the works of Your hands. And so when we see that term Father there, and how Isaiah unpacks that, for God to be Father, we're also seeing that God is uh, the Maker and Creator. So those ideas are connected. For God to be Father means that God is Creator. He's the Creator of not just Israel, though, but of all of humanity. And here we, we already have to be careful in our talking because God is Father, but He's not like our fathers. And I know the way that our language works and the way that our human minds work, it's hard for us to separate the concept of our human biological Father from our heavenly, eternal, transcendent Father. But first, we need to make something clear. God is not a creature. God is Spirit. God the Father is, this is surprising to some people, but He is neither male nor female. Because that's a creaturely thing. That describes people. describes animals. It describes maybe even some plants, I think. I may be getting way off course there. I think there's, plants have some sort of biological, you know, I don't know. I'm getting way out of my area of expertise here. But the point is, it's a creaturely category. But God is not Father in the same way that human men are fathers. That's a way that we can understand by analogy but what God is as Father. But God is God. And His fatherhood is a category all into itself. Even our reference to Him as Him or He or Father using masculine pronouns has entirely to do with how, how God has chosen to reveal Himself to us humans. And I think it's really bound by the fact that we can't fathom a being not being like we are in some way. So God has to use this analogy for our limited human capacity. And the difficulty of that too, referring to God as Father, is that not all of us have had good and loving fathers. That can complicate the picture. I know many of these, the, the people in this room have had wonderful experiences with their father, but even the best Human father is still just a human person. He's a sinner in need of saving grace. And so sometimes it's hard for us to, to see God as Father and not conflict that with our own um, experience with our human fathers. So we need to think of God's fatherhood as something, although maybe related in our mind, it's something entirely different than human fatherhood. And when we do that, we need to start with God and letting how God is Father define what fatherhood should be, not our dads. That should not define for us ultimately what God's fatherhood should be. This is hard for us to get these all separated out, and that's okay. But we need to approach this topic as if it were something other than what we're used to talking about. 
And so the first way that we see that uh, God reveals himself again to Israel as, as their father is, again, a metaphor depicting that he is a being that relates to them in some capacity. Haddon Robinson talks about this. He, he tells a story of a, a clock tower in Switzerland. But that clock is so precise that it only loses, I think, three-fifths, two-thirds of a second every two or three hundred years. It's so precise that since it's been created, it's only lost a fraction of a time. But do you know how they measure the clocks? How they measure its accuracy? They measure it in accordance with the stability of the universe by astrological. That's how we can measure how time passes because there are physical constants out there in the world beyond our reckoning that are always the way they are. They're bound by physical laws and properties. So even our man-made watches and things, we set by the machine that is the universe. But it's interesting when you think that I mean, this, this, this big, enormous universe that's bafflingly large, that there are literally more stars. There, this is unbelievable to me. There are more stars. Meaning there's more solar systems in the observable universe. They can calculate this than there are grains of sand in the entire planet of Earth. I was just, it's so overwhelming that it's, you, you feel panic thinking about it. But we don't refer to God primarily as a clockmaker. We don't refer to God primarily as a judge. In some ways, we don't even refer to God primarily as creator. We refer to God primarily as Father. The language of Father shows us that God's interest in humanity is one of relationship. It's not a cold, distant we're not just the, 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 the machines he's, he's wound up in his laboratory and, and set free. No, we're his children. And all the parents in the room, and all the grandparents in the room, and all the children in the room, which is all of us, can tell you that the importance of a good relationship between a, a parent and a child is such a wonderful, beautiful, divine thing. And that is how God primarily reveals Himself as Father. We've read this in Exodus 4 just a a few weeks ago when he refers to Israel, the nation of Israel, as my firstborn son. These people that he's covenanted with, he relates to them on a personal, intimate level. He is their father. And this repeats in places like Jeremiah 31, I have become a father to Israel. Or in Isaiah 63, You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from old is Your name. God is the Father. But that language is used with such... It's so sparingly used in the Old Testament. It suggests to us that the Israelites understood the massive gulf between God and them, you don't walk up to anybody in authority or power and refer to them with a a casual nickname. You don't walk up 
to the President of the United States and say, hey buddy, uh, showing a, as if you were in a relationship, that you had some sort of kinship with him. You don't do that with people in power and authority. If you've ever gotten pulled over by a police officer, you don't say, what's going on, pal? You don't do that. Because you know that uh, the, that's probably not going to be, your face is going to be shoved against the hood of your car if you start doing that. The point is that Israel understands that God is way beyond them. And so they refer to him as father, but only reverentially. And so the miraculous thing is that when Jesus comes on the scene and he begins to start calling God Father 170 times in the Gospels, something radically new is taking place with Jesus. It would seem that if we knew nothing else about Jesus, if we could for just a second just kind of forget all that we know and we just read the Gospels for the first time, it would seem that one thing you'd have to walk away with who was Jesus close to? Who did he depend on? Who did he talk about always? He's always talking about his personal, intimate, special connection to God as his Father. Think of some of the things that you recall him saying throughout the Gospels. Matthew 11, for instance. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except me, the Son. And anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal Him. This goes even deeper when in John 10, He strikingly says, I and the Father are one. Now listen, I love Jim Stallings. We have a great time together. But I don't say, me and Jim are one. That's just, if y'all know us, you know that's just not true. We're two very different people. We don't say we're one. That denotes something beyond what we know. And here's the most mysterious of it all. John 17. Jesus, in His high priestly prayer, says, Now Father, as He's he's facing the cross, Now Father, glorify Me and Your presence with the glory I had with You before the world existed. What? These things are so puzzling, so baffling, that it took the church hundreds of years to even get the language of Trinity down enough for us to have categories to talk about God well. To talk about Jesus the Son well. talk about God the Father well. And it's, it's still so tough to talk about these things today without sort of kind of getting the language of it wrong. I mean, God's, God's identity is Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons, yet one God, goes so far beyond our conceptions. It's almost impossible for us to have casual conversation without slipping into some heretical territory here and there. God is so much more gracious than our, our language. And He's so much more gracious than holding a lightning bolt over us, just waiting for us to say something Technically wrong about the Father and the Son. But what's so clear in the Scriptures is that the God that we read about, the Father, is one. That's true. But as Wes Hill helpfully states, God is not one in such a way that God is solitary. God is one. But He's not alone. 
When Israel confesses that God is one in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, the great, this is, this is their statement of faith. This is the creed that they still say in synagogues today. Shema Yisrael. And then they go into this great declarative statement of who God is. And what the church confesses later in the Nicene Creed, which is like a, just a kind of an expanded version of what we recited this morning, the Apostles' Creed. We confess together that the Scriptures rather teach this. It says that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and therefore eternally begotten of the Father. God from God. Light from light. True God from true God. Begotten, not made of one being with the Father. And here's the really amazing part. God inherent to His nature. Something that just He eternally is. Not something that He becomes. Something that He just is and has been and always will be. God exists in and as a relationship. Meaning that all the men in this room who were fathers became fathers. There was a time when some of you were not fathers. Not true of God the Father. God the Father has always been God the Father. Which means the Son of God, whom we know in Jesus, has always been the Son. He is eternally begotten. The Father always was the Father because the Son always was His Son. And again, here's we're going to get into language that just blows our minds, that defies our categories. Because God is not limited or bound to time like we are. There was a time in which... The, in the that nobody in this room was. It was probably somewhere, I imagine, in the 1930s that nobody in this room was. And then some of us started coming onto the scene. And over the next few decades, here we all are. That's not true about God. God has always been God. And He's always been the Father. And God has always been the Son. And the Father and the Son are not the same, but yet they're both God. And here's where I, that, I mean, we kind of understand that. God is the Father because He's always begotten the Son, and the Son is the Son because He's always been begotten of the Father. But where's the Spirit fit into this? And that's where we really get off the rails. The Spirit, in some sense, we see is the love and life between the Father and the Son, but it's not just, this is, the Spirit is not just a force, the Spirit is a person. And yet He exists binding together this eternal community and communion of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. I feel the circuit starting to fry up here. God has never not been the Father. The Son has never not been His Son. And their mutual love has never not been by the Spirit. And so not only is the doctrine of the Trinity a mystery in and of itself, but so is it that it's this God it's this God, the one that we've just been talking about, that Jesus calls Father and invites us to call Father too. So when Jesus says, Our Father which art in heaven, we need to pay attention to the fact that He doesn't say, My Father which is in heaven. Our Father which art in heaven. He's expressing His own unfathomably deep personal and close relationship 
with the God who spoke from eternity. And there was. Gardner Taylor, wonderful black preacher, he had a way of expressing, what was it like when God created? As God was speaking, let there be, everything that was, he is so powerful, so beyond, everything that wasn't was straining to become. That God who we have been reading about on on Sunday mornings, who intervened in human history in such a decisive way, not only to call Israel His people, but to rescue them from slavery and deliver them into the promised land, that is the one that Jesus calls Father. And the mysterious thing is, that is the one that then, as He's praying on His knees, turns to us, you and me, and says, together we pray, our Father. People, again, who were not even alive a hundred years ago, people that were born on the other side of the planet from Jerusalem. As far as I know, none of us have any Jewish background. You know, who knows what we are? Mutts, you know. We're that far removed And on top of that, we're people that have all sorts of sins and ignorances and fears and doubts and disbeliefs. And yet, Jesus says that we have every right in Him to say, Our Father, to this God. The author of Hebrews uses such a helpful metaphor when he says, Jesus is our older brother who bids us to come and joy the relationship that He's known for all eternity. Jesus is our older brother. You know how older brothers are. They teach you things. They lead you into things. Jesus, our elder brother, teaches us who our Father is. Commenting on this wonderfully is the Reformed theologian Karl Barth from the mid-20th century. He said this, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who has made Himself our brother, and makes us His brothers and sisters, takes us with Him in order to associate us to Himself to place us beside Him so that we may live and act as His family and as members of His body. So that's where it starts. Our relationship to God starts with Jesus. He's our elder brother, but in some mystical way, we become part of His body. When Jesus acts in the world, He acts through His church. When the church suffers, Jesus suffers. When Jesus suffered on the cross, the church was suffering. But then that same Jesus Christ invites us, commands us, and allows us to speak with Him to God. To pray with Him His own prayer. To be united with Him in the Lord's prayer. Therefore, He invites us to adore God, pray to God, and praise God with one mouth and one soul, with Him united to God the Father. All the mystery of God being Father and Son, of being God and Jesus, we are now as the church through Christ invited into that life. And this is just rearticulating. Bart is just saying what Paul said and Places like Galatians 4, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
We have been adopted as children of God, and therefore we are bold to say by the Spirit's power, Abba, Father. And he spells this out in Romans 8 also. Paul says, that's how we know that we belong to the Father. That's how we know that He's our Father. The Spirit of God testifies to our human spirit that we are God's children. Us! And so we clumsily but earnestly grasp onto the arm of Jesus, our elder brother, who very patiently, with wisdom and grace, with spirit and truth, leads us to the throne of His Father, and together we say, Our Father, which art in heaven. Now let's, we've, we've dealt just skim the surface of what it means for God to be Father, but let's get in closing to this last part, which art in heaven. We don't want to brush over that. Right off the bat, I'm going to say, there's a lot of mystery here. What it means for God to be in heaven, what heaven is, who could possibly experientially tell us? Not those people that say, I died and went to heaven, saw Grandpa strolling the streets, and Jesus told me a riddle about this. Whatever they say to get on Good Morning America and say heaven is like this. Let's just disregard that. But what does the Bible mean when it talks about heaven? Most of what we think about, at least me, I'll, I'll, I always say we do this, but maybe it's just me. So I'll be honest with you. When I think about heaven... The thing that gets summoned into my brain is medieval paintings of Italian men and women floating up into the clouds. Or, or maybe it's just, you know, thinking about good old southern gospel songs. We're going to be, you know, mansion in the sky, me and grandma are going to be up there playing tennis. Or maybe it's just a Tom and Jerry cartoon. I grew up watching Tom and Jerry cartoons. And I, ha- I have to kind of like cleanse that out of my thinking about heaven. That's not what heaven is. Heaven is not some far off cloud city on the other side of the universe we float up to <laughs> when Jerry finally gets the best of Tom and we see Tom's ghost lift out of his body and start to float into the sky. But the biblical image of heaven is so much simpler than all of that. Heaven isn't a place as we think of places, rather, biblically speaking, heaven is the reality that God already inhabits as His Spirit. Whatever it means for God to be God, and wherever God is, that's what heaven is. I had a seminary professor tell me, God doesn't live in heaven. Because that would suggest that God lives in something that's greater than God. No, when we start talking about heaven, we need to start talking with God is heaven. You know, God's, God's reality, His mode of living, His being is the thing that creates heaven. Heaven flows out of God. It's not that God is in this little box, white cloudy box called heaven. Heaven isn't a place that contains God. Heaven is anywhere that God already is. But the reality of, of that is marred in our world. Because we see through a glass darkly as Paul tells us. Sin has made it to where, remember, paradise, heaven and earth were overlapped in the Garden of Eden. God lived there and so did Adam and Eve. Heaven was on earth, truly. Sin ruptured those realities apart though. And so for centuries, millennia, humanity was living in a hell on earth that we created. 
But through Jesus coming into the world and reestablishing our connection to the Father through Himself, heaven has started to invade earth again. That's why at the end of the Bible, it's not that we all die and again float away. But the ending chapters of Scripture says God brings heaven back to earth. And the garden becomes the garden city. And the nations are there and they bring their talents and their cultures and their gifts and their languages and their particular identities and they live with God forever. And God is their God. He's their Father. And we are His people. That is what heaven is. Heaven's not there. It's here. It may just not be quite now. Not fully anyways. But when Jesus came and said, the kingdom of God is here. It was here in Him. Heaven was here in Him and His ministry. Heaven is invading earth through the church. We're not waiting to hit the eject button and fly off into space. We're waiting for the rest of God's grace to invade and take over this planet and make it all new again. So the entirety of Jesus' ministry is about that. Shattering our curse and reestablishing God's place here with us now. And we'll get more into that because that's a topic that I want to really for us to think about. It's such a, it's the biblical way to think about heaven, but it's such a more helpful and comforting way to think about it. But this should remind us that the goal of the Christian life, again, is for God to bring heaven here to earth, making all things new, casting out sin, hell, and death forever. And that's what we hope for as Christians. Jesus is the focal point of that. Everything we've talked about tonight. God as Father. Heaven as being on earth. Those things are only possible because Jesus, who says to God, you are my Father, through Him He holds our hands and says, and now you can say, our Father. Heaven, as, as, as paradise reestablished on earth, is because although we rebelled against the Father and the Father recoiled against, away from us because of our sin, sent Jesus back to reestablish heaven on earth. And so everything we've talked about, everything we will talk about, puts all the focus on Jesus. In some ways, this is the disciples' prayer because this is how the disciples pray, but it's really the Lord's prayer because all of its truth comes to us through the Lord Jesus. Now before I close, I just want to read one last thing. I like how Malcolm Guide, if you've known me for any amount of time, you've heard that name before. He's a contemporary British poet, Christian pastor, and he, his poems are just so striking and beautiful. He has a series of seven poems about the Lord's Prayer. And I just want to read this poem, 14 lines, it's not very long, about our Father which art in heaven. Because he summarizes in 14 sentences what I have not been able to summarize well in 40 minutes. He says this. This is from the human perspective looking at Jesus. I heard Him call you His beloved Son and and saw His Spirit lighten like a dove. I thought His words must be for you alone, knowing myself unworthy of His love. You pray in close communion with your Father. So close, you say, the two of you are that you're one. I feel myself to be receding further, fallen away, 
an outcast and alone. And so I come and ask you how to pray, seeking a distant supplicant's petition, only to find you give your words away as though I stood with you in your position. As though your Father were my Father too. As though I found His welcome home in you.